Well, this morning um, I thought I'd take a leaf out of the book of what it means to start a new year, and that's to talk about startups or start over. Uh, of course, we always talk about New Year's resolutions, and most of us have ruined them within a week. So we need to start and look at it from a biblical perspective. And this morning what I'm going to do is go through, from a chronological perspective, I picked out half a dozen characters and how it is that they started up or started over. And I think you'll be surprised by what it is that you find and how often people whom God delights in writing and recording about in the scripture have actually had a big start up or a big start over experience. But this morning we're going to focus on, as I say, a few of these characters uh, because this is one of my favorite sayings. Um, I've used this before some years ago. Choose your rut carefully because you're going to be in, the next, be in it for the next 200 miles. Uh, literally, that's a true statement seen on road signs. Up in places like Alaska, where the, the road freezes over when there's mud on the ground and you just got to stick in that rut because it's around about 20, 30 meters, or 20 centimetres high. I was going to say 8 inches, but those of you who are younger than me won't understand that. So, 20 centimetres high. Starting up and starting over is a real biblical uh, mandate. We look at what it means to be a follower of Christ and we know that at some point we've decided to start up or start over. And we're going to look at that a little bit more towards the end of our talk. But I just wanted to pick a couple of illustrations. Uh, most of you won't realise that in a rowing race, if you have a breakdown in your, with your gear, with your boat, in the first 200 metres of the race, you put your hand up and the judges will stop the race. It's true. It's the only sport around that actually allows for that to happen. And so that means that the race is delayed, the gear is fixed, and you get to race again. The reason why I put this particular picture up, of course, is because it's got uh, the New Zealand World and Olympic champions, Hamish Bond and Eric Murray in there. And just before Christmas, uh, they announced that they aren't going to be competing anymore together. They're going to leave their unblemished, unbeaten record uh, on the table, and they're moving on to other sports. Well, you wouldn't believe it, but Hamish Bond, the guy in the front there, which one? Which is the front of a boat? We never know, do they? Because they're all going backwards. Okay, this is Hamish Bond, that's Eric Murray. Hamish Bond decided to take up cycling. So he did the tour of Southland, which is where all the professionals race. He wins the stage of that race. He then does the Abel Tasman Cycle Challenge and blitzes the field, including uh, the French... What's it called? The French Tour de France, including Tour de France competitors, and he beats them all by five minutes. Eh? Now, you've got you to put it in perspective. They reckon that he's got a heart like a horse. Uh, literally, almost a heart like a horse. When it's going flat out, hard as it possibly can, uh, it's doing around about 150. You know, I do that by the time I get to the car. You know, so, doing 150. And uh, his mate, uh, Eric, says he's got a little gerbil heart, does about 300 to keep up. You know, so these guys are built for this. But here is a guy who's prepared to lay down what has been an absolutely perfect record. Absolutely perfect, unchallenged, unblemished, unbeaten, and he's starting over. Isn't that amazing? I think it is. It would have been so tempting to say, come on, let's just see how long we can spin this thing out for. Let's see how much of a record we can stay, uh, build that is just going to be unbeaten for all time. Maybe they could go for another round at the Olympics, win three Olympic gold medals, unbeaten in their class. But no, they decided to lay it down. He decided to go for a bike ride, and now he's beaten everybody. It's crazy, isn't it? It's amazing. You know, one of the things about growing older 
is that you become more and more established in the ways that you do things. How many men here have a bit of a routine of what they do when they get up in the morning? Yeah, come on. Yeah, I can only talk about the men because, you know, I'm not qualified to talk about the women. But I, I get up in the morning, I'll um, put the jug on, make myself a cup of coffee, put a couple of pieces of toast in. Uh, the dog will always wander in at that stage. I feed the dog, the dog then scratches at the door, I let the dog out, I go back and I'll put tomato on my toast or avocado this time of year, I like that. And, uh, and that's the beginning of my day. And it happens pretty much routine. All of you will have a similar routine unless you have children under the age of eight. At that point, you realise, or to that point, you realise that they actually run the house, you're just the tall person there, and uh, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, regardless of what order you put into the chaos. Is that true, parents? Yeah. And it's, it's fun, though. As your kids get older, uh, you get to the stage where we are now, where they tuck you in and put you to bed, and it's kind of nice. <laughs> it's kind of nice. You know, we, we snooze off, and they stay up all night, and I don't know what they do. But when we're a child, we play in the playground or the sandpit, we play with plasticine, we play with things that are, are molded and shaped and then undone. You ever thought about it? Think how often you played in the sandpit as a child? You think of that? Who had a sandpit as a child? Lots of us, yeah. And the thing about building things in the sandpit is that you knew that if it, was, it wasn't made well, you could just rebuild it. In fact, at the end of each day, everything in the sandpit got destroyed. That was half the fun of building, wasn't it? Especially if you're playing with your little brother because you could wreck his stuff before you wrecked yours. And then, uh, anyway, we won't go there. I've got childhood memories that need healing. But we've got the opportunity there to, to see things built and rebuilt, broken, torn down and rebuilt again. But as we get older, the things that we build aren't so easy to break down. And that's why I mentioned Hamish Bond. Because he's built a reputation, he's built a credibility, a worldwide credibility, and yet he gives it all away and says, I'm going to start, start again. How many of you here in your heart of hearts could think, there are parts of my life I'd just love to have a makeover, a complete start again? We should all have something like that. It's not to be ashamed of. The reason why I say this is because um, the generosity of God provides generous space to start over. The generosity of God, if he is generous, he's going to provide generous space to start over. The this, this starting place that often we begin with is repentance. It's the ability to go, hey, I've made a mistake, I'm going to start over. And so we have the ability each day, each year to look at our lives and go, there are things that I know God wants me to change because they're pressing on my heart. They're causing me trouble or confusion or other people the same. I can actually bring this to God and I can actually bring change into my life, not in my own strength, but in the strength that God will give us as we focus on these things. And I want to introduce the first character to you. The first one I want to meet, you to meet is Abraham. Now, Abraham, from all accounts, was a pretty solid character. He came from the city of Ur. Everybody say that? That's a great way to start your new year, isn't it? Ur. I love that. I just think it's a play on words. I don't know... Uh, what, what really the meaning of that city is. I'd probably have to look it up. I just love the way it sounds. Uh. Uh. Yeah? What are you going to do today? Uh. Where do you come from? Uh. What are you going to do with your life? Uh. That's a conversation with a 15-year-old teenager. Yeah? A boy. A boy. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so Abraham was a little bit older than a 15-year-old teenager. Abraham was actually a lot older. He was a middle-aged guy, having done well for himself, having been raised in his, with his father's household, as was common. He was a man who had many uh, animals. He was a wealthy guy. He had slaves. In other words, he had employees. And yet God said to him, I want you to leave all of this good stuff behind. Again, a little bit like our rower. Uh, you know, why would you want to leave all that behind? Why would you want to change all that? It's going well for you. If it's going well for you, why wreck it? Well, the reason why it was wrecked is because God said to him, look, we are going to take you on a journey, and that journey is going to give you something bigger and better than you've ever had before. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. That's the reason why he was called to leave what it is that he'd already had, is that he was already blessed, but now he was going to be blessed to be a blessing. Isn't that cool? And when we think of different people in our world today, and we see how it is that they, they champion causes out of their respect or out of the confidence that society has given them, out of their success, people come to a place where they say, I've got to move from success to significance. And that will sometimes mean laying down what you're good at, good at to be able to learn again, take all of your experience and pour that into something fresh and new, which is going to help for maybe eternity's sake, as it was with Abraham. But I am going to be blessed. Sorry, I'm going to bless you, said God, so that you can be a blessing. How many of you are in that place like Abraham? Successful, but maybe need a change. You know, because success in itself can be boring. You know, imagine just counting your money all day. Oh, man, again and again. What have I got to do today? More money to count, you know? I'm sure that's why Bill and Melinda Gates started the foundation, you know? How much more money can you get? How much more money do you need? They have poured literally billions of their dollars, majority of their income now, into solving third world problems. And Warren Buffett, who at one particular time was the second wealthiest man in the world, says... Well, I want to do the same. I looked around and I couldn't see anybody doing it better than I could think I could do it. So I gave all my money to the Gates Foundation. We're talking 30 to $40 billion. You know, if I had to count that every day, I'd give it away too. Yeah? That must be mind-blowing. Imagine getting up in the morning and find that your shares and stocks had moved by 3% overnight. Oh, what happened this morning, dear? Oh, we lost a billion overnight in the stock market, you know, that would be, anyway, we don't have to worry about that, do we? <laughs> it's not something that generally concerns most of us, I would think. But um, it's easier to continue on doing well in success and being successful and being applauded for that than moving into significance. Think of the Fred Hollows Foundation. Fred Hollows was an ophthalmologist did cataract surgery in, his, in, his, in and around Australia. Then he started to expand his influence into the Pacific Islands. And long after he's died, 20 years after, he, after he's died, there are hundreds and hundreds of ophthalmologists working in the Pacific under the foundation name of Fred Hollows. And this goes on and on and on throughout society. And we see this again and again. 
But we often say this is about somebody else. This is never about us. But you too are blessed to be a blessing. Even if it is the best thing that you can do is bake a cake. And you'll go home and you'll bake one today and you'll take it over to your neighbour and you'll say, Happy New Year. Just thought I'd bless you with a cake. Because why? This is the best thing that I do. Okay? And right this time of year, you don't need to eat another cake, but you could bless your neighbours with one. Okay? What about Joseph? Some of you uh, might be a little bit like Joseph. You might not have had a very good start in life. Yeah, you might have had some privileges, but things didn't go well after a while. Now, Joseph, we've got to look at his life and say one thing. It was about his beginning as a child. He was a spoiled brat. Okay? He went on to be the prime minister of Egypt, but he started off as a spoiled brat. His father favoured him, gave him a coat of many colours. Uh, Joseph has a dream, a God-given dream. And he pulls all his brothers around him and he goes, hey guys, guess what? I had a dream last night. I dreamt that you were all sheaves of wheat. You know, the sheaves of wheat are tied up wheat after having been harvested. And he said, and you were all sheaves of wheat and you were bowing down to me. It's like, and just imagine the brothers, eh? Good one, Joseph. Yeah, we like that dream, not. And so when he had the opportunity to be sold into slavery, they did, and they thought they got rid of this brat in their, society, in, their, in their family. But of course, God raised them up. God raised them up and gave him opportunity to exercise his leadership skill, and he came to the point, by being the prime minister of Egypt, that the brothers came to him many decades later looking for food, and indeed they were the sheaves of wheat that bowed down. But for Joseph, we're going to ask that question. Are you defined by your hurts? Are you defined by your hurts? When you look back at your life, if you were asked to give a a one-hour talk about your life, would you put in there how it is that the hurts have forced your hand, how the hurts have given you opportunity to hold grudges against one another in your family or maybe your friends or in the workplace? This is a really big challenge because it's very easy to be defined by your hurts. And yet Joseph managed under God's hand to lead himself through this. And he said this to his brothers, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. The bigger picture is what Joseph actually started to look at. You see, we can look at difficulties in our lives and go, man, that was a very, very tough time, and uh, it hurt me a lot. But then we should take the helicopter view of our own life, and we should look at it and go, yes, but am I better as a result of going through that tough, tough time? Am I better as a result of going through that tough time? And have I grown? Have I learnt? Or would I have been better if life had just been sweet? I think often we look back and we go, man, I think I'm better for having been through tough times. Would that be fair to say? Is that tough tough times for you guys? Have they been the ones that have shaped your character? I know for myself it has. And uh, and, I mean, here's here's a classic quote from a classic guy. Nelson Mandela said, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would, I can't read that up there, that would lead to my freedom, I knew 
if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. I'd still be in prison. After 20-odd years of breaking rocks, literally, on Robben Island as a political prisoner, and he was set free to ultimately become the Prime Minister of a New South Africa, he had to make a decision to forgive those who put him in jail. Otherwise, he knew that in his heart of hearts, he would remain in jail. And so we see what happens with Joseph, is that Joseph became this prime minister, and he released his brothers. He releases his brothers from that debt that he really owed them, a debt of punishment. And they went on to become with him the 12 tribes of Israel, the leaders the, the, the uh, genetic fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. What about King David? We've spent a bit of time looking at him this last year, and we've really enjoyed it. One story that I didn't pick up on, for, for reasons being that there were so many stories, is of a time when David was outcast from Israel. He'd been sent out by King Saul, pursued by King Saul, and told that uh, he was not wanted anymore. He teams up with some of the neighboring tribes who were essentially Israel's old enemies. And he pulls together all of these ragtag group of men, basically Israelites themselves, who were outcasts from society, thieves, robbers, political uh, deviants, if you like, a little bit like him. And they go off to fight. They go off to fight. And they leave their women and their children and all of their possessions in a place called Ziklag, Z-I-K-L-A-G, Ziklag. And the enemy comes in when they're off fighting and takes all of their possessions away. All of their possessions away. And the men who were with David were so incensed, so angry. Now, we just lost your wife and your children and your possessions when you come back. And they were really angry with David for his leadership or lack of it or incorrect or poor leadership as it was. And so what they did is they said they were going to kill David because they couldn't see any way about how they were going to get their families back together. But this is what David said to himself, and this is what he did. It says, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters, but David found strength in, found strength in the Lord his God. You know, they think, oh, well, what's that got to do with everyday society? You know, it's not very often we go away for the weekend and come back and the Amalekites have raided our house. Okay? I'm recently not living out to Puna anyway, where I live. Maybe Fokamaramara might happen. But um, here is David. Now, some of us in this room have worked so hard in your day job that the enemy has come in and robbed you of your family life. Robbed you of the relationship with your spouse. Robbed you of your relationship with your children. And they may be angry with you. Thanks, Dad. Yeah, you're off warring with the neighbours, trying to you know, make, a, make a living, as it were, as a soldier. And you come home, and what's happened? The family doesn't want to know you because you've just been so committed to other things. And these priorities that we have in our life or lack of right priority can be just as damaging as any war going on anywhere, except this one's happening right in your household. So David encouraged himself in the Lord. In other words, he said, I have to 
changed his life to pursue the enemy in this case. And so what happens, the story goes on. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. This is a way in which they sought the Lord. Abiathar brought it to him and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. Now the point here is that I'm not saying you have to go off and kill a neighbour who's upsetting your family. What I'm saying here is that once he was confronted, once he was confronted with the fact that his family was gone, he inquired of the Lord. And for anybody who's in a place where they feel that they're too busy, the first thing that you need to do is take this to God because it's very easy to try to correct things like this in your own strength. God has a plan for your family. You need to know what that plan is. Don't do it in your own strength. Don't do it in your own wisdom. Your own strength and your own wisdom has already got you to the place where you are right now. So you need to look for an alternative way out. That's exactly what David did. He sought the Lord. He had courage to do so, even though he was surrounded by people who at the time were against him. Remember what I said before? The generosity of God provides generous space to start over. Starting over is a, um, is a real hard thing to do. It's a really hard and courageous thing to do. But I found that the, when I think about this, there are two types of motivations that cause us to start over. The first one are the outsiders, the motivations that come from the outside. Oh, I'm really going to work hard because I want to own that car. I really want to work hard because I want to get further up the corporate ladder. Or I'm really going to because I see something that I aspire to. This motivation has its limits. What you're saying is that you're driven by some carnal need, some outside external need that is going to give you some satisfaction by owning something or being somebody based upon what society says you should aspire to and what you are good for. The other motivation, of course, is the insider's motivation. What happens on the inside? See, it's not about what you own. It's about whom you're becoming. God is really interested in who you are becoming in this journey of life. You can, as the scriptures tell us, you can own the whole world but lose your soul. How does that benefit anybody? And so when you're talking about making a difference, making a fresh start, you need to sit down with a piece of paper and say, who is it that I want to be by the end of this year? Not what is it that I want to own, where do I want to travel, what experiences I might want to have on my bucket list, but who is it that I am becoming? Because what we notice is that when we look back at the characters we've already looked at, Abraham was becoming a blessing. Joseph was going to become a man who held no bitterness and become a wise leader. David was going to become a man who rescued and restored families in that scenario. So it was about who he was becoming, who they were becoming. So when you sit down and you say, what am I going to do this year that's going to make a change in my life? It's not about, man, I want to buy that new car. It's saying, I would like to be more patient. 
I'm going to work hard in this area of my life. I would like to be more generous. I would like to acknowledge that I have two ears and one mouth, so I'm going to listen more. There are lots of things, and they're all common to us. How can I do this by this internal motivation, the insiders? Another young man, because we can always talk about Abrahams of this world who are in their 80s and, and over, and the Davids, a young man, in fact a boy, was called King Josiah. Eight years old, he became the king. Eight years old, King Josiah is put on the throne and we would know as we would expect. There's no way an eight-year-old boy is going to be able to rule a nation. So he had people around him who were guards and guides, sages who were wise, people who were there to help him. Uh, and, and yet, as this young leader started to form up, as he started to grow up, he took cognizance of the fact that as the king, he had huge amount of influence. And even as a young boy, he had influence. So I just want to talk to young people today for a moment. Don't for a moment think that because of your age, you lack influence. You have spiritual influence that you don't even realize that you carry. A, because God answers your prayers. But B, let me tell you this. If you come to mum and dad, or even your friends at school, and say, you know what, I think we need to pray about this, you will find that you can influence your family and bring the, the nature and the character of God into your household or into your set of friends in ways that wouldn't happen if you hadn't have been brave enough and bold enough. Young Josiah had the, the, uh, the priests, as it were, in the day clean out the temple. This temple was a relic, just basically an old museum to the past. Worship had disappeared from the nation of Israel. Can you imagine that? This is the nation that gave us the scriptures. This is the nation that formed the foundation of our faith. And for a season there, the worship in the temple had ceased to exist, even though the people lived in the city of Jerusalem. And so what happens? King Josiah says, can you go and clean out the temple? And what happens when they clean out the temple? They find something called what we know as the Old Testament, the book of the law, the law of God. And this is how this unfolded. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, this is Josiah, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam son of Shaphan, Akboah son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found, that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Here is a young leader saying, our history has been better than our present. One of the things I like as I get older is learning more about history. How many of you have been on that little journey as you've got older? You find that history is more interesting? Why? Because you're part of it, I suppose. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. But history repeats. History forms itself into a shape and a momentum, and it repeats its cycles 
through, throughout history, doesn't it? And so what we find here is Josiah has discovered that this nation was once a nation led by God, under God's hand. And maybe as a leader in your family, a leader in your household, you need to stop and say, hey, look, I think there have been better times in this family. I think there have been better times amongst us in respect to our, our collective worship and our collective honouring of God. There have been better times. This isn't um, to shame anybody, but just to simply say, we know that things slip. We all have those opportunities, though, though to, to rebuild and reestablish. And so Josiah willingly took Judah, the nation he was leading, out of an unrighteous rut. Out of an unrighteous rut. The nation had given up on God. The nation had forgotten its ways of worship. But it decided, under the leadership of the king, King Josiah, to pull down all of those uh, uh, places that the, the false gods were being worshipped. And in doing so, he established the right way once again. Now we're getting close to the end of my walkthrough. I've got two more characters to introduce to you. And you'd think that I would have this guy at the end. But because we're doing a uh, sort of a chronology through the scriptures over this brief 30 minutes, um, I want to introduce what it was that Jesus said to us about change. Of course, Jesus is change personified, isn't he? When you think about the God of heaven and earth, the second person of the Trinity, who established create, and created the world, how his transformation was such that he allowed himself to be born as a child into that crib in Bethlehem. That is change personified. You don't get more dramatic change than to come into this world as a baby when you're the, when you're the creator of the world. Now, now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, that's Jesus, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Okay, here is a huge statement by an eloquent and intelligent man. A guy who was respected amongst his peers. And he acknowledges that there is something powerful in this person of Jesus that he has never seen before. And what is Jesus' response to him? You can imagine what Nicodemus was looking for. He'd be saying, you must be of God. Maybe you could help me know what you know. Because that's what we do. When we tap into somebody who's got something that we haven't, we try to get them to help us understand how they got it so we can get it, and then we can be equal to them or better, maybe. That's a very human trait. But what does Jesus say to this person? Instead of going up, you've got to go back. And Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. The generosity of God is that he creates generous space for us to start again. At 23 years old, I had a born-again experience. I wasn't raised in a church environment. I didn't have that privilege. But I had a desperate, desperate longing and a desperate, desperate need to try to make sense of the world that I'd already spent a couple of years traveling around, trying to experience what it is that others had, and then I realized that what I thought they had, they didn't have, 
And so it was a huge disillusionment to me to finally return to New Zealand uh, at the age of 22 and say, well, maybe life is just about getting a mortgage and, you know, just seeing it through. Thank God, thank God I took the opportunity to accept an offer to go to church. Thank God for the church that embraced me for my warts and all and still does. But I was born again. My whole world transitioned. It was like turning the lights on. After I accepted Christ into my life, I can remember the following day, it was like the sky was blue. No, really, really blue. The grass was green. No, really, really green. The birds sung sweetly. My heart changed. My language changed. My attitudes changed. My compassion changed. I actually had some. You see, being born again is not just a figurative experience. It's a literal experience. People's lives are transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have been for 2,000 years, and millions of people have had the same experience as me, and millions more, and we operate as a church to facilitate that experience or the equivalent of in other people's lives. That's what we're about. That's what we're about. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. In other words, this isn't born in anything, in anything of a natural way. This isn't about a human decision to procreate and make more little human beings. This is God's desire, God's will being outworked to create children not of parents, but children of God. So that's why we can comfortably say, within the generosity of God, there is myself. Myself. You are ch children of God. If you've accepted that Christ has died for you on the cross and has forgiven your sins, you are a child of God. The Apostle Paul, of course, had the same experience on the road to Damascus. Uh, most of you will be familiar with the story, how he was persecuting the church, putting Christians in jail, even witness and possibly killing them himself, but certainly witness to it. And what did he do? He went off to Damascus to pursue and persecute the church, and Jesus appeared to him in a powerful, powerful manifestation. And once he's knocked off his horse, he looks up blinded and he says, who is that speaking Lord? <laughs> when you get knocked off your horse by a big bright light, you put Lord in there. It's kind of given, really, isn't it? You know, I don't know who you are, but you're the boss right now. You're the boss right now. But Paul, the apostle, said this in his later days. And this is something that I've always, always leaned into, and I've spoken about this personally over the years. This uh, text from the letter that he wrote to the Philippian church. He said, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. God has a plan for you. And he's saying to you, maybe you've made some 
difficult choices, some tough choices, maybe you've made wrong choices. Maybe you've ended up in a place where you're successful but not significant. Maybe you're in a position where you're, you're, you're like Abraham, where you've come to an age and a stage where you need to push on and move on. Maybe you're a little bit like Joseph, who's going to forget what is behind. In other words, the, the challenges of family and the hurts and the pain. Maybe you're going to push on from that. But God calls you heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's what this is all about. That's what Paul is saying here. Uh, he, he was a Jew, not just a Jew, but a Pharisee. Not just a Pharisee, but a leader amongst the Pharisees. Somebody who had been given privilege and responsibility. Somebody who was way ahead of his years as far as his uh, maturity and his responsibility was concerned. And this is what Paul is referencing here. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider yet to have taken it all. But forgetting what is behind, Paul says, I leave all of Judaism behind. I leave all of what it meant that my character and my reputation was built upon. And I start again. This is Paul's declaration of saying, I am born again today and tomorrow. I will perpetually be born again. Paul said this to the Corinthian church. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one gets the prize. Run in such a way to get the prize. You know? What he's saying is, be the best you can. Be the best you can. I know around here at our church, we be the best that we can. We try to honour God by bringing the best that we can. It doesn't mean that we're going for perfection. It doesn't mean we're going for perfection. But we just want to honour God with the best that we can. We want to honour people with the best that we can. Now, I've had people come to me and say, you know, Craig, in church, um, it's all just a little bit too polished. And I say, okay, you tell me um, what would work for you then. If you could just let me know how many bung notes do you want the musicians to strike on any given Sunday to make you feel better? And tell me. And, and um, how boring would you like the sermons to be? You want one boring sermon every three weeks? Would that help? One real, real snorer, real... And I could throw in some heresy. In fact, I could throw it in and you wouldn't even know it's in there. You walk away believing it. How much heresy do you want? And, and um, you know, well, we're working on the air conditioning at the moment to make it not perfect, but... You know, people say dumb things like this. You're like, Seriously? Do you want us to do less than we're capable of just to make you feel better? You know, do you want me to, you want me to, to, to come to your place and, and just to prove that point, you can give me a can of baked beans, cold. That'll make me feel good because I know that I'm not competing with you. You, you get these ideas around that we somehow in the church that we bring our second best, our second fiddle, yeah? That's just dumb. You wouldn't expect that in any other profession. Hey? Okay? Imagine going to the doctor. Okay? And the doctor's sitting there going, Oh, I'm over it today. You know? Oh, that last person, I, you know, 
I, I treated a person there a while ago for uh, ingrown toenails. If I just give the next three patients the same medicine, they won't know. You know? Would you expect that? Seriously. Why would you do that? You wouldn't do that in your work. And yet in church, we can often give up on the idea of running for the prize. I want... Now, now, now I put my Baptist Union hat on. I want every one of our 240 Baptist churches, which I'm the national leader of, to bring the best that they can every given week. I've had a guy say to me, you know, look, I don't put too much work into my sermons because if I really, really hit the mark one day, they might expect it the following week. How do you reason with that sort of logic? You know? You're like, do you tell your kids, don't win the race. Don't win the race. Because next time you run, they might expect you to win the race. And your kids go, oh, okay, Dad, that's a good idea. That's not a good idea. Do you tell your kids when they go and do an exam, go for 50%. Sit in the middle. Then no one will know you're there. And you can just get by by being Joe Average. Yeah? You can name all your kids Joe. Joseph, Joanne, Joel, Jolene. Just make sure they're Joe so they can be Joe Average at everything. Yeah, sorry to all the Joes out there. I wasn't trying to get at you. (laughs) But run the race as if you want to win the thing for God's sake. I'm using the term well there. For God's sake, run the race well. Don't be half-hearted. You might not win. You might not win, but you might get fourth or fifth, which is better than getting 24th or 25th. Run. And the Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There is a cloud of witnesses. Now don't get me wrong. You know, this picture in your mind that all the saints from previous generations, are all up in the clouds, playing harps, looking down, going, how are they getting on? This is not the image, this is not a literal image that's being portrayed here. Because our understanding of, of, of eternity is very different to that image. But the cloud of witnesses talks to us about people who have gone before us, people who have endured, people who have persevered, people who have run as if they're going to win the race, people who have given the best that they can. And the generous generosity of our God gives us room and space and time and power to get up and give it another go. Don't be defeated. Don't say, man, this is as good as it gets. Take the opportunity that God has given you, and it doesn't matter whether you're just starting out in life or whether you've got more road in the rear vision mirror than is through the windscreen. God will take you at any given time. Because as you look even at the characters that I chose this morning, we've got eight-year-old boys and we've got 80-year-old men in Abraham. And they all stood up 
said, I'm not done with them till I'm done. And I'm going to give it a go until it's complete. I'm going to run the race until it's done. And if you find me, you'll find me collapsed, but with one foot in front of the other, still heading forward. Still heading forward. Let's get on with 2017. Let's get on and make it a great year. As much as it depends upon you. Let's stand. Praise the Lord, eh? If you're with somebody who you came with today, who you're close to, hold their hand. If you look at the guy next to you and you don't know him, and he looks strangely back at you, don't hold his hand. Okay? Father, we, we come before you today, and, and we're mindful that... Um, we only get one crack at this life. This isn't a rehearsal. And so therefore, to run the race, as the Apostle Paul talks about, is to take hold of something that is yet to be appropriated, yet to be seen, yet to be identified in cases, and certainly yet to be fulfilled. We don't want to live 2016 again. We don't just want to put the CD on and play it again. That would be dumb. We want to be able to take hold of what it is that you've taken hold of us for. These great and wondrous things that you told the Apostle Paul that we should look forward to when we forgot what was behind and pressed on. We want to be able to be a blessing as Abraham was called to be. We want to be able to forgive powerfully, restoratively as Joseph was. We want to bring spiritual renewal into our families in the way that Josiah did as that young king. We want to be able to get our family priorities right as David did after having sacrificed his family to his work. We want to obviously take every opportunity to receive the promises that Jesus has for us. That we too can be born again. Not of human will, a human decision, but born spiritually refreshed on the inside, renewed, made whole, forgiven, and have a whole new life in Christ. Lord, all these things are available to us. They're there for our taking. It's our choice. Your choice has already been made. You're for us, not against us. And so we thank you, Lord, for your amazing generosity that gives us the ability to make a fresh start wherever we are with whatever situation we face. And so we ask all of this, so Jesus will be glorified. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.